0: Turn to our text this morning, please, which comes from Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. We'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Thus far as the reading of God's word. I ask you this day, brothers and sisters, What makes someone a member of the family of God? What makes someone a member of the family of God? Is it man who ultimately decides, hey, I want to be a part of God's family? Or is it God who ultimately decides who will be counted amongst His children? This is a question that has been at the center of much debate in history. We can go back to the early Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. We can go to the Calvinists and the Arminians with the Reformed obviously coming down on the side. That our inclusion into the fellowship of the saints is an act which is grounded in the eternal and immutable will of God. And we can cite... Many passages to, to buffer this point. And one of the many texts describing God's sovereign election or choosing comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 where Paul says this, even as He has chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ. This text speaks quite clearly, I think, to the fact that we are made sons and daughters through His, that is God's, choosing. Right? And someone might retort though, yes, you are right. It is through God's choosing. But God somehow looks down, right, the the corridor of human history, and He sees who's going to believe, and He sees who won't believe, and so he chooses on that basis. And so really, God's choosing is based on your choosing. But Paul, of course, anticipates this retort, doesn't he? And he answers it in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Speaking of the two boys born of Isaac and Rebekah, right? Their two sons, Jacob and Esau. What is it that Paul says? Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works done, but because of him who calls. she was told the younger or the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved Esau I hated here in our this text, right Paul explicitly states that the choosing of Jacob and not Esau was made with no regard to their works. No regard to who would believe or who wouldn't. No regard to who was going to be a good boy and a bad boy. Right? No regard. It was based solely upon the purpose and free will of Him who calls and who chooses, and that is God. Right? The election of Jacob and the reprobation of Esau was according to God's divine prerogative. And so we see ultimately, brothers and sisters, it is not the choosing of man which determines if they are elect or not. But rather, it is according to the free will and purpose and unchangeable will of God who determines who will be a member of His family. And so I offer to you this quick, brief, Rudimentary introduction into divine election. And I begin with this because Paul does in our text this morning in verse 4 when he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. See, Paul speaks to their election. He speaks to their choosing. And so I briefly want to touch upon that. I briefly just wanted to give you a little introduction into divine election. But that's as far as we're going to go. Because this text really isn't dealing with divine election. Right? Paul takes for granted that they know what a, to be chosen means because he doesn't go on to describe it. But rather, Paul's purpose in writing verses 4 and 5 and telling them that they are the chosen of God is to not tell them what election is, but to assure these brothers and sisters that they are the elect. Right? He's not telling them what it is that election is, but rather he's writing to assure them as they are being troubled by those outside. Their confidence is being shaken. He is writing to assure them, brothers and sisters. I know that you are the chosen of God. Right? And if you remember, brothers and sisters, last week I I asked you to read verses or chapter 17 and 18 in in, the, in Acts. And I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands of, of who did, I, I wouldn't do such a thing. And I I know surely that you all did. And if you did, which I know you did, you would remember then that the people that Paul and these Thessalonians are dealing with are they're antagonists, they're instigators, right? They're trying to stir up trouble amongst the saints. They're trying to get them to reject the gospel, they're trying to get these saints to question their election. And so this is the source of concern for Paul. This is why he's writing this to them. This is why we read in chapter 3 here, in verse uh, 4, starting at verse 2, Paul will say this, that he wrote and sent Timothy to establish and to exhort them in the faith that no one be moved by affliction. And then in verse 4 here of chapter 3, he says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand, that you were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You see, Paul's fearful that the tempter has come and has stirred up trouble amongst them. And so he sends Timothy in order to establish their faith and to exhort them in the faith. But he also wrote that he sent them in order that Timothy might come back and tell them about their faith. Were they, did they have faith? Did they not? Did, they, did the believing Greeks who were there turn back to serve idols once more? Did the believing Jews turn back to Judaism? And have they now rejected the Messiah which they profess faith in? All right. This is what kept Paul up at night. And yet, what are we told that Timothy informs Paul? In chapter in verse 6 of chapter 3, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. You see, Paul is writing. His mind is now put at ease. He sees the faith that they now have. It is a true and a genuine faith, a faith that only comes through God, a faith that is fixated upon Christ the Messiah. And so it is this, brothers and sisters, that forms the basis of Paul's eagerness to write to them as brothers. Who are elect in Christ. And he's writing to assure them of the fact that he knows this. Right? He knows it as far as one can be sure of the faith of another. Paul's saying, I'm sure of the faith that you have. Right? He's sure that they are members of the household of God. Based really on three reasons we can glean from the text this morning. There are more reasons that we will cover next week in verses 6 through 10. But this week, Paul is really dealing with how he knows and how he wants them to know that they are elect. Next week, in verses 6 through 10, we'll deal with more with why they ought to know that they should have assurance that they are elect. And so, the three reasons why Paul says he's sure of their election, why Paul is comfortable calling them brothers and saying that they are chosen in a a part of God's family, is one, because he sees that they are loved by God. Paul says they are loved by God. The second reason that Paul knows that they are chosen is because of the Gospel he proclaimed. And the third reason that Paul knows that they are chosen is because of the example that he gave. And so we have God's love the preached Gospel, and the example given. So looking then to point one, God's love. How does Paul identify that God's love has been expressed for these saints? Well, remember once more Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Once more, Paul says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ according to the purpose of His will. You see, brothers and sisters, if you are chosen, you are loved. The two cannot be separated. You cannot unhinge God's election from God's love. Both of them, we read, stretch back from all of eternity. And I ask, what was the greatest expression of that love in human history. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The greatest expression of love ever shown was the Father sending His Son to die for you and I. There will be no greater expression of love that you will ever see And so Paul knows that they are chosen because they have faith. A faith that is given to them only because Christ died for them. And Christ died for them because God loved them. This is why Paul knows that they are chosen. Paul also knows that they are chosen because of that love that was extended to them, they themselves show to others. Remember, we love because God first loved us. This is the reason that we can love. And so one's election should be evident. We see from last week the saints were commended for their faith and their love and their hope. And what was it we said that they, that they loved? They loved Christ and they loved the church. They loved Christ in turning to Him from idols. They loved Him in not abandoning the faith when under pressure from others. But rather, they were willing to walk worthy in the face of pressure. Willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Right? And how is it that they loved the church? Well, we read here today that they, they loved the church as they longed to see Paul. Right? They loved the church in their work of faith and in their labor of love expressed to one another. And so Paul is willing to say, I know that you are chosen. I know that you belong to the family of God because we see the power of God at work in you. We see God in your midst. Now I'm sure that that Paul, out of Christian charity, took them to be brothers when they said that they were, as we all should. If someone says, I'm a believer, I, I profess Christ, we should have Christian charity and take them at their word. But Paul isn't just taking them at their word here. He says, I know that you are brothers. I know you are believers. And this term brother has a a familial term. They are brothers who belong to a family. And Paul, as a member of that family, can recognize his brother when he sees him. Because they resemble the character of the family. Right? Isn't this true of our own family, right? We we resemble our family, don't we? Generally speaking, right? Uh, we we resemble them in our physical characteristics, right? Uh, our children might have their parents' eye color, or their hair color, uh, or facial features, or when a when a, a young child is growing fast, sprouting up, you say, oh. You're going to be tall just like your father. right? But not only do our children resemble us in our physical features, but they also carry a lot of our traits and our other characteristics. right? And as our father bears no form, this is how we resemble him. right? In our traits and in our characteristics. When a child is tender-hearted, we say, oh, he has a, a heart just like his mother. Right? When a child has has a good work ethic, we say, oh, he got that work ethic from his parents, didn't he? When a child is helpful and hospitable, he said, he must have learned that from his family. Right? It is something that was passed down. And so Paul is saying, this is a similar thing that he sees in the Thessalonians. Right? He sees these traits exhibited amongst them, these characteristics. And he says, I've seen those before. I know where they come from. You must have received them from God. Because these are traits that are only identifiable in His family. In the family of God. And so, brothers and sisters, this should cause us to be introspective ourselves. And to ask ourselves here, do we resemble our Father in His traits and in His characteristics? If a, a brother from another church or a sister from another church Would come here and visit us and spend time with us. Would they go back to their congregation and say, "Those brothers and sisters I worship with, I know that they are chosen. I know they're chosen, right? I've seen their love for God and how they worshipped Him. I've seen how they loved one another, how they loved the church, how they sang together and prayed together and helped one another." I've seen how they were hospitable to me as I came and I joined them. I've seen how they stood side by side firmly in defense of the Gospel, even after dealing with persecution and after dealing with trial. Could this be said of us here? Is our election evident before others? Could someone say, this church reflects the characteristics of our Lord? And so this should teach us, brothers and sisters, as those who profess that God has chosen us and loves us in Christ, this should teach us that we should be constantly striving to resemble the family. We should constantly be striving to bear the characteristics of our Father. We should be constantly striving to be conformed to the image of Christ. For Christ perfectly reflected the image of His Father. He perfectly reflected His Father's characteristics and traits. And so we should be striving to imitate Christ as well. Right? We shouldn't be those who take our chosenness for granted. We shouldn't say, oh, we're chosen, so now we can just live like the world. No. We, like our Father, ought to hate sin and hate evil, and abhor it, and find it abominable, and look to live holy and blameless life because this is what characterizes the family of God. Holiness. Blamelessness. And so if you're chosen, your election should be evident because of the effective working of God's Spirit in you. Again, this is something that we will touch more on next week. This week, Paul's focusing on their election and his message of assurance to them based on what he has seen in them. He sees them and he says, I know your brothers. I know that you belong to the family of God. Because you could not be doing what you're doing if it wasn't true. You could not exercise faith. You could not exercise love unless the Father loved you. And none have faith but those who are chosen. None have faith but those who are chosen. And so what faith has produced inside these Thessalonians are really tokens. They're tokens of God's election and of God's love produced inside of them as His adopted sons and daughters. That's what Paul is seeing. Now the next reason that Paul then points out to assure these saints of their election is based on his proclamation of the Gospel. This is point number two. Paul knows that they were chosen because of the effective working of God's Word that Paul knew was present when he proclaimed the Gospel. This is what we read in verse 5. Because our Gospel came to you not only in Word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes, I think that we read this passage, we read this verse here, and we think that it has to do with the with the recipients, with the hearers of it. That when the message is preached, we, we say, Oh, yes, they receive it in power, they receive it in the Holy Spirit, they receive it with full conviction. And yes, that's true, that is true. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying here in verse five. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here in verse 5. Right? Verse 6, if you look there, that touches on what happens to the recipients. Right? He says in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and our Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right? So verse 6 through 10, we see what the gospel produces in in the hearers how they received it, what it produced in them. But what I think Paul has in mind and what many of the Puritan writers interpret as what Paul has in mind is that Paul knows they're chosen because Paul knows what was preached and how it was preached. Paul knows they were chosen based on what was preached and how it was preached. This is why he can call it in verse 5, Our Gospel. He calls it Our Gospel. And then in verse 6, he talks about how they received it. But in verse 5, he's talking about how he knows what he proclaimed. Right? And so Paul understood that God was working through his proclamation of the Gospel as Paul was God's instrument. He was, he was God's mouthpiece to declare the Gospel to all the world. And so when Paul says the Word came to not only in word, but in power, and it came to the Holy Spirit and in conviction, Paul is speaking about how it was delivered to them by Him. When Paul preached the Word, Paul preached it in power. He preached it by the Holy Spirit. And he preached that message with full assurance of the message he proclaimed. That's what Paul is saying here. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah 55. And we will see the power that is in the preaching. Isaiah 55, and we'll read verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. We read this. in the thing for which it was sent. Right? Here, brothers and sisters, the Word is likened to rain or snow that falls from heaven. And it saturates the ground. And it helps to sprout the crop. And it gives food to the eater. And we're told then, the Word, which interestingly enough, is said to go out from the mouth of the Lord, it does not fizzle. It does not fade. But it too accomplishes all that God will purpose it to accomplish. Right? This is what is so often missed amongst preachers and amongst the congregation. That when God puts a minister before the congregation to preach His Word, it is God who is speaking to you. It is Christ who speaks to you His Word when you sit in the pew and you listen. And if more people actually believe that, maybe they would come to church to listen. Perhaps if the elders of churches themselves believe that, they wouldn't deprive their peoples the Word of God and instead turn worship into song and dance and performance. Right. Yet, we must know, it is important to know. Does God amen that? (laughs) It is important to know that Paul isn't speaking about some inherent power that he had. Right? There isn't some inherent power of Paul. But rather, as God's mouthpiece, as Paul stood before the congregation and he proclaimed the message of God, that message that God called him to be a steward of, Paul knew that God was powerfully working through him and he was blessing that message. That's what Paul understood. That's what Paul knew. And so Paul knows that this is the message that the saints are receiving. A powerfully working, God-effective message. And so Paul, with sure confidence, knew that God's Word, when preached like this, would not return void. It would not return void. But as Isaiah said, it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish all that I have purposed it, and I shall succeed in the thing that for, for which it was sent. And for these saints, we see, it was sent to bring about faith in the hearer, wasn't it? This is what we see. But we also must understand that this is not always the only purpose for which the message is proclaimed. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is told to go forth and to proclaim this message. And the Lord tells them the purpose, his purpose in proclaiming that message. And you know what the purpose was? It was to make heavy their ears, to make blind their eyes, so that they would not see, and that they would not turn back and repent. The message can also be a message in order to condemn the wicked. And I think that this is true here of these unbelieving Jews and Greeks in Thessalonica. Right? This message Paul is preaching to them and all it is doing is hardening the hearts of those whose hearts are already hard, isn't it? Right? And yet, for the chosen, we see in our text what effect God's Word has on them. Many believed and they gave evidence to that. And so Paul's confidence that God was working in him through the Spirit, brought about this conviction. It brought about this full assurance in Paul that he preached the Word. And he preached with full assurance that God was blessing the Word. And so it went forth in boldness and in sincerity. And Paul had deep affection as he preached the Word. And is it not true of ministers today that when we proclaim the Word in boldness, Don't you believe that God is blessing the message and that is the reason why you're able to proclaim it even when it's an unpopular message? Or for Paul, wasn't it this full assurance that he knew that when he proclaimed the Word that God was working through it that caused him to be able to proclaim the message even in the face of imprisonment and death? Yeah, I think it was. right? This is why preaching matters so much. Because this is the Ordinary means God uses to bless His people through the preached Word. This is why preachers matter. Because they are God's instruments that He uses to be a blessing to people by proclaiming His Word to them. Faithfully and accurately. Because when the minister preaches the Word, being empowered by the aid of the Spirit in full conviction of the message they preach... You can be assured that the people will receive it in power and by the Spirit and with full conviction. But this is also then why point three is important. Paul tells us that this, the saints, he knows that they are chosen because of what he knows they have witnessed of him. Right? Paul lays down his case for his own godly character here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Turn with me and please direct your eyes there to chapter 2 and we're going to begin at verse 5 and read to, to verse 12. Paul says this, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made while we proclaim to you the Gospel of our God, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Remember, Paul's opponents are trying to undermine the Gospel and trying to undermine their belief in their salvation and in their election. And they're trying to do so by assassinating the character of the messenger. They're trying to assassinate the character of Paul. And so Paul says to them, you know the truth, brothers and sisters. You know what type of men we were as we labored amongst you. And so Paul is saying, You can know that your election is sure, brothers and sisters. You can know that you are chosen by God by reminding them of the messengers of the message that they are those who can be trusted. You can trust those who brought you this message, brothers and sisters. For they were sent by God, and so you can know that your election is sure. Paul says, we came preaching to you while we were suffering. We weren't looking for our own gain. We weren't looking for our own advantage. But we were looking to be of aid to you. Our desire was that we would proclaim the Gospel. That we would call you into obedience as we are. We weren't looking to get rich. We didn't have ulterior motives. Because we, who are also a part of God's family, love God and love you. And we showed this to you. We put this on display night and day as we were amongst you. And yet now we see why James says what he does in James chapter 3 verse 1 when he says this, Not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You see, Paul demonstrates to us that the minister is to be the example of the flock. This is why he's ready to defend himself. Because He's an example to them. They're to look most like Christ. Because they are the ones who the congregation look up to. This is why abuse in the church in any form, in any kind is so heinous. Because ministers have been charged with being overseers and being protectors of God's people, of God's church. This is why Paul is so ardent in his defense here. Because he cares about his name and he cares about his character. He cares what kind of example he was to the flock. And he's not doing so in a a prideful manner. But he's doing so because he knows that he is representing the family of God. This is why he is so ardent in his defense. He says, although these people are making claims to my motives, you, brothers and sisters, you know the Gospel I preached. You know how I lived amongst you. And so this should be a lesson to all who are ministers, who, who desire to be ministers. You must live blamelessly. This is why a minister isn't to be given to much wine or they're to have their family in order. right? Because the congregation is looking to you as the example. And not only that, those outside the congregation are looking to you to stumble and fall so that as soon as you do, they might blaspheme the name of Christ. And so you must be sure of your calling. You must have full conviction. Yet you must be daily striving for holiness. Right? This goes not only for the minister, but for the congregation. We must be daily striving for holiness. Right. In our word, in our deed, in our thoughts. Right? For we are God's instruments. But the, the minister is an, an ambassador of God. And so Paul looked upon this this calling as a high calling. And he wanted the, the saints to recognize that he conducted himself as a rightful ambassador of God. And so he wanted this to be a point of encouragement to them. He wanted them to recognize this. And in recognizing this, that they might see and know that they are chosen by God. But he also wanted them to know this. That their election was sure. Because he wanted them to know that God loved them. They can know that their election was sure because God loved them. He wanted them to know their election was sure because the Gospel that he proclaimed came with power and in full conviction. And he wanted them to know that they could know that they were chosen by God. And he knew that they were chosen by God because of the messenger. As a messenger too, were brothers and members of the very household and family of God. Please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have revealed to us that You have given us an assurance of faith that we are the elect, that we are those who are chosen by God. We thank You, Lord, that this is not something that uh, we one day are uncertain and one day certain of. But you, by granting to us Your Holy Spirit, give us certainty of faith, certainty of Father, that our inheritance lies in heaven with Christ. And yet, Father, oftentimes we, uh, we doubt. It is true, we doubt because we are those who oftentimes are uh, those of little faith. And so, Father, we would pray this day that you would strengthen our faith, that you would strengthen our faith in you, that we would not doubt whether we are truly saved or not, but that we would be those who have certainty and assurance that you tell us that we can know. That we are the saints. That we can know that our inheritance is in heaven for you have granted to us the Holy Spirit. And so Father we pray that you would grant us uh, uh, greater assurance, greater faith that we might live out the Christian life. Father we pray that we would be those who would exemplify and give evidence to our faith. That we would be those who labor in love and have endurance of, of hope. That we would be those Father, who if others come before us and see us, that they would see those who are children of God. And so, Father, we pray this day for courage and strength and boldness to live the Christian life, to give evidence of the Christian life, to not live like the hypocrites, but to live as members of your family. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.